Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. Uh, this week I got an old pal, Josh Green. Uh, he's got a new book out this week on Tuesday called The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Struggle for a New American Politics. He also wrote Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency back in 2017. And I got to tell you, it was probably the best of the early phase books examining how the populist right came to power. The interview, I think, is super interesting. I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about the populist right here at the Bulwark and a little less talking about the populist left, so I wanted to dig into that. I also just uh, want to flag here, first Sunday show of 2024, it's an election year. I'm going to be doing my best to give you guys, you know, some fun breaks, some fun interviews, you know, do do some Jane Lynch throwbacks. You know, you can go through the archives and see all the interesting people that we've had. You know, we had little Steven over the holidays, and he was awesome if you've missed that. But uh, in election year, we're going to have to do some politics sometimes. So just, you know, stick with me. I'm going to keep these interviews fun, um, and we're not going to do the same shit we're doing in all the weekly podcasts with the news of the day. But, you know, we're going to have to talk some politics. We're going to talk some policy, and uh, I'm looking forward to a good fun year of the Sunday show. Make sure and go to uh, subscribe to our feed, like and comment on the Next Level feed. And, and we've got all the Sunday shows in an archive on the Bulwark YouTube. So check that out if you want to go back, if you're new to the pod and, and want to go back and, and hear some of the absolutely awesome interviews last year. Uh, maybe my favorite might have been the one with Amanda Shires. So if you don't know who she is, maybe go back and find that one and, and just treat yourself. It will, it will delight you. But up next... We've got Josh Green. It's a good convo. You're going to enjoy it. We'll be back here with just a ton of content over the next two, three weeks with the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary. We're going to be going live. Um, So make sure you're subscribed to the feed uh, to keep up to date on all the stuff we're pushing your way. Up next, Josh Green. But first, my friends at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. We're doing populism today with my buddy, Josh Green. I'm excited about this. He has a new book out in two days on Tuesday, so pre-order it. It's called The Rebels, Warren Sanders, AOC, and the Struggle for a New American Politics. He also wrote, I think, probably the best, at least, OG era book about <laughs> the rise of the Donald Trump and the populist right. It was called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. So we'll talk about those guys a lot. But Josh, thanks for doing this, brother. Great to be with you. You know, we spend a lot of time on the material mined by your last book, Devil's Bargain. So, you know, maybe we'll get to that a little bit on the back half. But um, not as much bulwark time is spent on the populist left. You know, we live in a fragile detente with one another, <laughs> with our common foe. Uh, but yes. I, I think it's good from time to time to kind of dig into it. So, And I think I might have, we might have some disagreements on your on the assessment of the political power um, of this faction. But I, before we get into that, I just want you to kind of make the case for yourself. What's the elevator pitch on the rebels? And, and you know, what was your main takeaway? Well, you know, as you know, my last book was on, on Trump and Bannon and the rise of the populist right. And I weirdly had kind of known those guys before they were, especially Bannon, before they were big political figures. And so I was kind of there for the whole elevator ride from like obscurity to the White House and kind of wrote that up. 
But, you know, I come out of the, the kind of lefty policy journal world, Washington Monthly, places like that. So I'd always been interested in the left. And for a, a long time, I was a columnist for the Boston Globe. So I kind of gotten to know Elizabeth Warren, like back before, you know, back when she was just the TARP cop oversight, before she was really like nationally famous. And I'd always thought, like in my mind, that the most important political event in like my adult lifetime was a 2008 financial crisis that it created this huge fracture in the country that, you know, I could see anytime I was out on the campaign trail, obviously it had this big effect, uh, you know, giving rise to like the Tea Party and then and the MAGA movement and Trump. But I'd always thought that it had an equally important effect on the left. And like that was the book I'd always wanted to write. And that's what The Rebels is. It's basically a kind of a modern history uh, of the Democratic Party and how it kind of turned itself over to Wall Street beginning in like 1980 with catastrophic effects that led to the financial crisis, which in turn gave rise to this kind of brand of lefty populist politician that really hadn't existed in America for decades and decades. Like Warren was the first one, like in my adult lifetime, to come out and like openly publicly attack a Democratic president, a Democrat willing to kind of do that. You know, eventually she kind of gave rise to Bernie and people could see that this left populism, especially like economic populism, like really had had life. And, you know, you were out, obviously, in the, in the in the 2016 election. And whether it was at, like, Sanders rallies or Trump rallies, like, this was the thing that, like, excited people. And there was this kind of crossover. Like, you would be at a Trump rally. As a reporter, you always ask, who's your second choice? Like, for a lot of people, it was Bernie. And if I was right. at a Bernie rally, like, in a normal town, not like a college campus or something, but, like, out in, you know, small-town Iowa, you ask a working-class guy, like, who's your second choice? Like, it usually wasn't, like... Joe Biden, it was it was Donald Trump. And so really this this book is kind of the flip side of the coin, the last book I wrote. And and I think it's important because the the interesting thing about this movement is that it it really kind of failed in 2020. Neither Warren nor Bernie got elected president, yet at the same time it kind of succeeded because Biden has really taken up the lefty agenda. And the fact that he's even competitive, like a wheezing old guy like this who, like, nobody really wants to be the Democratic nominee. The fact that he's running neck and neck with Trump and that the economy is in such great shape, even though polls don't reflect it yet, uh, I think really owes to the fact that he took up the agenda, you know, a plan designed by populist progressives, used that to respond to the kind of COVID crash. And here we are today with, you know, record high stock market, low unemployment, Crappy consumer sentiment, yes, but it's sort of trending in the right direction. So I think if Biden gets reelected, he's going to owe a lot to my characters. Okay, well, you're uh, you're trying to drag me right into our area of disagreement. Uh, well, I figured, with, I, I figured uh, I'd the, start uh, out that way. With so the popular strength. Yeah. So we'll 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 argue about how much a Biden uh, exceeded to the lefty agenda here in a second. But I, the thing I was most intrigued about about your book, it's kind of always the case. Those of us who like live these normal politics, like I like the flashback stuff, the stuff I didn't like know as well. And and so you go, but you take us all the way back to Jimmy Carter. And, yeah. I, and I kind of know nothing. Uh, I mean, n nothing is overstated, but as, you know, I don't know a political expert's worth amount about the Jimmy Carter presidency, right? Yeah. This is sort of the defining line before my time. And, um, and, you know, not a ton of books have been written about the old Jimmy Carter presidency <laughs> either. So he's yeah. kind of in a donut hole for me, a little bit of my knowledge. And, and it was interesting to read, you know, kind of where you sort of set the germs of this, you know, populist left movement is that Carter having much 
more sympathies towards that side of things, at least on the economic side, and getting basically bullied by more of a pro-corporate Democratic lobby totally. and Democratic House. So anyway, tell that story and kind of draw the line from there up to the financial crisis. To me, so I'm going to start my answer in 2009, because this okay. is where the kind of germ of the book came from. I was working at The Atlantic at the time, and I did like the kind of long, flowery magazine profiles. And Tim Geithner who was the treasury secretary at the time, like allowed me to kind of embed with him for six months. Like nobody does that anymore. Like they're all afraid of reporters now. But back then it was just normal. I worry that they get the Tim Alberta, Chris Licht treatment where like he's like doing doing push-ups or something. Tim's ruined it for everybody. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) But back then, you know, so I was kind of embedded with Geithner and like these guys thought they were crushing it. You know, they were responding to the financial crisis and they bailed out the banks and we didn't have a second Great Depression. And yet... In the time I spent with them, it was clear that, like, people were fucking furious. Just, like, normal people. Like, the fact that, like, Goldman Sachs survived and grew, like, didn't count for shit. And, you know, the fact that, like, people were losing their houses and, like, we had seven years of, like, austerity and job growth hadn't returned. Like, the entire middle class was kind of being ignored. And, uh, you know, there's a scene in the book where I'm kind of sitting with Geithner and, like, this was right in, like, February, of, I think, of 2010, when uh, you know Ted Kennedy had died and 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 his uh, seat had been won by a Republican Scott Brown, it looked like there was a blow up Obama's up whole agenda, and like Geithner was just like, I don't understand what's happening. Like we did great. Like why isn't the American popular? You know, like kind of rallying behind us. And and to me that that had always been like if you look at if you look at what happened over the next ten years of politics uh, on the right, but but on the left, you know, it all kind of goes back to that to that crisis. And so to answer that question, like. I kind of like went back and looked at, well, how, how did it become the case that, that the Democratic Party, you know, historically the party of, of like workers and unions and all that had gotten so in bed with Wall Street that, you know, A, guys like Geithner were, were kind of running Democratic administrations and, you know, Goldman Sachs CEO could, could serve in a Democratic administration, same way they always could in a Republican administration. Like, how did they wind up that ignorant to like the political costs of, of like governing in this way. And, and the answer to that question took me all the way back to the late 1970s in the Carter White House and did a bunch of archival research and, and geeked out on this. But I do think it's kind of like the coolest chapter in a way. The answer was Carter, you know, in the late 70s was beset by, you know, high inflation, like rising unemployment, like, you know, oil crisis, all that mess. And Democrats really just didn't have an answer to get out of it. And he wasn't a very good politician and he was kind of stuck. And, you know, the Fed back then was kind of stuck. They couldn't bail him out. And so what ended up happening was uh, the business groups had kind of, you know, newly organized in opposition to Ralph Nader had come up with this idea of capital formation. It's basically supply side economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, it's sort of an interest group for for kind of Wall Street. But they sold Democrats, a lot of them at the grassroots level, a lot of congressional members on the idea that, hey, the thing to get us out of this economy is to like – wildly cut taxes, cut the capital gains tax, like hand the farm over to Wall Street, you know, and Carter and Democrats, like lacking any better ideas, kind of got rolled and wound up going along with it. And after Carter lost, that kind of gave rise to these neoliberal Democrats, people like Tony Coelho, who I write about, the DCCC chairman in the early 1980s, who first turned to Wall Street and started raising tons of money uh, in order for Democrats to be able to compete in this new televised era of politics and run against Ronald Reagan, you know, that eventually gave rise to Bob Rubin, not just raising money for Democrats, but like being the prime 
you know, economic official in the Clinton White House. And we all saw where that ended in 2008. So to me, like the story of what's going on in politics today can trace all the way back to that. And, you know, that was kind of the original sin that led to the crisis that led to kind of my characters. And now Biden, you know, who's been around for Washington for like 400 years, you know, and was around for for like the first iteration of this kind of Wall Street inflation stuff, has worked his way all the way back around. And like, ironically enough, taken up at least the economic agenda of a lot of these new folks on the left, these populists. Yeah. Biden being so hostile to Elizabeth Warren initially and her ideas on the bank and the bankruptcy of Warren is a good Such little anecdote a, from the book. Yeah, he's kind yeah. of a dick to her, actually. Totally. In her you know, I was, I was going to not use that word, but since you've used it, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, like, I've been around Washington long enough to remember when, like, Biden used to be talked about. I think Bob Dole called him, like, the senator from corporate America because, like, he represented right. Delaware and the whole economy is just, like, giveaways to large corporations. It's like he hated Elizabeth Warren back when she was a finance professor and it was like super sexist and, you know, trolled her in hearings and all of that. And so, you know, there's 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 a certain irony and serendipity, the fact that he's kind of come around and taken up large parts of her economic agenda. And like whether or not he gets reelected, I think is going to depend in part like on whether that agenda works. So I think, you know, for all the liberal doomerism we see on, you know, Twitter and Blue Sky and like God knows what other social media networks you're on, Tim. Like, I really no, do no. think that, that, that liberals have a lot at stake, you know, as much as anybody at stake in this election. And they should kind of quit whining and, and get behind Biden as, as unappealing as he is in many, in many facets. Yeah, my other throwback from your thing, and then and then we'll we'll take it to modern day that I really enjoyed. Just a little fact that I I guess I kind of remember this from what it takes, but I didn't I didn't you framed it in such a way of like just how neoliberal pro capitalism Dick Kephart was. So <laughs> as growing up as a Missouri Republican, I was born in Missouri. I was like you know my family, my grandparents are always all like really old line Republicans. All hated Dick Kephart. He was a big lib to them. But reading your book, I was kind of like, man, I think I kind of like Dick Kephart in retrospect. Yeah, you know, we, need, we need a little bit of capital. No, it's, it's crazy how in like, let's say like 1982, 1983, Democrats with presidential ambitions were so frightened and terrified of being tarred with a Jimmy Carter brush that they like freaked out and like raced to the business side of the economy. I can't remember the Gephardt quote. I think it was like, you know, we ought to be letting banks run the economy. Kind of, they know what they're, <laughs> it they know like what the, they're doing. It sounds like Gordon Gecko in a couple of quotes. It, totally. Like, like, like all these guys did at Gary Hart. And, you know, it's just like... Knowing what we know now, it shouldn't be that surprising, you know, what came down the pike later on. But uh, yeah, okay. no, the, the fun part for me really was like delving into that history that like the stuff that you and I didn't live through in politics. Um, but Yeah, so I want to get all that out there because that takes it to the fundamental question I have that I want to kind of work through with you about this kind of populist wave. Because if you take the premise of your book, right, which is that <clears throat> this this era of left populism emerged from the Wall Street crisis and was pretty focused on financial issues. One way to look at that is that the populist left had a tangible concern that was in line with a lot of, you know, a lot of voters. They got results, maybe not everything that they wanted, but they got results. The wave has and the wave has kind of subsided and the sort of establishment center left, neoliberal, whatever you want to call them, have have reasserted kind of dominance within the party. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that that was like the tangible concern that kicked off this like long-term, 
you know, political movement that yeah. is like akin to kind of the right wing populism and that, you know, maybe they aren't in power now, but they have, you know, they've taken over certain corners of the party and slowly but surely when it comes to 2032, we'll have, you know, a fully formed lefty populist running the Democratic Party. Like which which one of those trajectories do you do you feel like more aptly? Is trajectory A, that's the Tim trajectory that that like they've kind of had their moment and like. Because yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, mo- I'm, I'm mostly on both, board. They're both caricatures. They're both caricatures, yeah, right? No, 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 okay. I, I'm more on the former side, yeah. Okay, good. I'm more on the latter side, except the bit about, like, one of these lefties is going to run for president in 2028 and win, because I, d- I don't think that's the case. My kind of thesis, and, and it's just unassailable, Tim, you're going to have to come around to it, is that you know, economic populism is the unifying thread in democratic politics. It's what brings moderates and progressives together while also pulling in like, you know, Indies and even some Republicans. Like it's the thing that attracts majoritarian support. You know, if you take it out of the sort of carapace of like a radical like Bernie Sanders or or even Elizabeth Warren, certainly AOC, you know, when you put stuff like minimum wage on the ballot or a wealth tax or, you know, poll people, whatever, these are very popular ideas. And my 25 years or whatever reporting on democratic politics, like in Washington, but especially kind of out on the campaign trail and out in the states, is the closer Democrats hew to kind of that version of what progressive liberal politics look like, the more successful they are. But the fatal flaw that these lefty progressives have, and I write about this in, in, in The Rebels, is that, you know, by the time they got to 2020, like Trump poisoned a lot of liberal brains. Like I saw this up close, you know, and for much of the left, Poison some moderate Republican libertarian. Definitely, well. definitely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's made your career. Yeah, but for much of the left, I mean, definitely Warren and Sanders, like early on in, in their lives, and this is sort of the story I tell about each of them in the book, like their main focus was economic populism. Like Bernie used to get whacked, right, when he, when he ran for president because every answer went back to economic injustice and this and that. And, you know, black activists were in Black Lives Matter folks were attacking him for not being woke and racist, you know. What happened with once Trump came on the scene, I sort of submit in the book is like it created there was a moral imperative for progressives, not just to take a kind of maximalist position on economic populism, on you know, raising taxes on the wealthy, but on every position against Trump. Like in that, that, you know, whether it was like opening borders or doing away with private health insurance and like putting in a 30 trillion dollar medic uh, you know medicare for all plan that would triple everybody's taxes and that kind of superseded basic electoral concerns and i think that's why you saw you know i, I was i was sort of embedded with warren in like the fall of 2019 kind of for the book and for, mm-hmm. for a brief moment there she was like leading all the polls if you remember this fall of 2019 of course me and Bill Crystal were on a conference call at that. I have, a, I have a very vivid memory of a conference call between me and Bill Crystal in like around around this time, fall of 2019, where we're saying to each other, "So can we support Warren? We can support Warren. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. can support Warren." He's like, "We can support Warren, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, I think we can." And then he's like, "And it's kind of like maybe actually we'll be needed more if it's Warren." And I was like, "Yeah, we probably will be needed more if it's Warren. Okay, whatever. It'll it's Warren. Warren will be fine." And the reason you guys never actually had to make that choice was because, you know, rather than the race just being about like, hey, let's do a wealth tax, like let's get kind of shit under control in the economy and get rid of Trump, uh, you know, all of the lefties sort of pushed each other into like, you know, no opponent to my left. And so next thing you know, we're like debating these absurd plans about like passing Medicare for all and who would pay for it and all these little kind of, you know, 
policy riders and so on for, for a plan that has no hope of, of ever being enacted. And I think, I think it scared people. I mean, you had, you know, early on in that fall, you had Warren leading the polls. You know, she, she kind of declined a little bit, partly because people realized, like, the woman who has a plan for everything doesn't have a realistic plan to pay for Medicare for all. Right. And, like, do I really want to risk this? You know, then for a while, kind of Bernie took off, but he ran into the same problem. It, like, at the end of the day in 2020, what Democrats wanted was who is the safest pair of hands to pry Donald Trump out of the White House? And that wound up being Joe Biden. I think it was always going to be kind of Joe Biden. Um, and the lesson in that for Democrats is that, like, people don't want radicals running the government. Like, they like your economic populism, but they don't want radicals running the government. And so to answer your kind of question about, are we going to have this kind of wild, lefty, progressive populist running in the future? I don't think we ever will. But I think that Joe Biden was the best thing that could have happened to progressive populists because a president, Joe Biden, you know, managed to like instantiate a lot of like big lefty policies that I don't think a President Warren or a President Sanders like ever could have managed because they would have seemed too scary. Like yeah. Joe Manchin was not going to be hopping on board with Bernie's plan for anything, but he but he was for Joe Biden. And, you know, progressives wound up with a, you know, three hundred million dollar climate bill, even though it was pitched as inflation reduction. And so from a policy standpoint, like I think that Biden has actually like been a great uh, victory for a lot of these people on the progressive left. And the fact that Bernie is not running against him, Warren is not running against him, AOC is not running against him, I think is a recognition on their part of the same thing, that, that he's really like not the guy they love, but getting the job done on a lot of their policy concerns. So I want to poke a little bit of hole in the Biden thing next, but uh, I want to go back just really quick about the electoral prowess part of this, because it sounds like we have an agreement on this, that they don't have electoral that much long-term electoral prowess. And I think that part of the reason is, and this is, this is where, where I do agree with one of your statements, is that, you know, you can get a united front within the Democratic Party on some populist economic issues, like you're talking about the wealth tax, the minimum wage increase. I mean, I don't know if you can get, you know, the, the bulwark former moderate Republican types <laughs> of our coalition on with the wealth tax. But, like, you could surely get us on board with a tax increase for people making over 400 grand a year or whatever. You know what I mean? If yeah. you want to you want to give me a, a throw a couple extra points on the death tax, um, you know, to yeah. punish the Nepo babies, like you're going to get most of us on board. with. Like, so even the, the more conservative side of the coalition will get on board for, for much of this stuff. Maybe not everything. But. The problem is once you get beyond that in the populist element to it, into foreign policy and cultural issues. And, and I think one weakness of left populism compared to right populism is that on the right, you have a mostly a homogeneous group, right? It's like mostly working class whites and like kind of bitter pro professional class whites, right? Like who all hate. I know the type. Yeah, who all hate institutional elites, right? Like, yeah. and so, and so they're like going to be mostly united, maybe not on every single thing, but like, uh, uh, like broadly on the agenda. Like, the left is this kind of motley crew of like union guys and economic populists and intersectional high edge, yeah. you know, Harvard neo Marxists and like Black Lives Matter, you know, identity politics types. Like, is it possible to to cobble together that coalition in order to create the kind of power that we've seen from the right populists? Like, I really just don't think so. At least well, not I, I, I think I mean we 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 have proof that it is right because Joe Biden basically embraced that agenda in 2020, and then like to everybody 
everybody's surprise, kind of instituted even more of it than I think most people, including like Warren and Sanders, would have imagined a couple of years ago once he became president. So you don't necessarily need like a populist agenda to unify Democrats. Like the big unifier of Democrats right now is Donald Trump. And, right. you know, maybe in 2028, it'll be like, I was going to say Ron DeSantis, but like, no. Donald <laughs> not, Trump Jr. Not, Donald Trump Jr. There you go. Or, or something like that. But I think that, you know, if, if you're looking to like Bernie or Warren to run in 2028, no, I totally agree with you. But I think the future of this like strain of progressive politics, Biden showed that like it has to be carried forward by a normie politician. So I could totally see like a Ralph Warnock or a Gretchen Whitmer like running on these same economic policies. Uh, and yet, because they are coded as kind of normal mainstream Democrats who actually have more appeal than probably Joe Biden does to, you know, minorities, women, et cetera, et cetera, they really do have the capacity to unify the Democratic Party around this kind of agenda, like in a way that would have seemed unrealistic 10 years ago. Right, but part of the reason why they're coded as normie Democrats is because they act normal. They don't, act, you know what I mean? Like Raphael Warnock, if he runs a 28, is not going to have like his he, him pronouns in, in his in his Twitter bio. And he's right, not but, going but neither, to. But neither did Joe Biden in 2020, right? right that's, yeah, exactly. that's, that's the key. And that's the sort of like life lesson for all populists is that look at what happened to Bernie Sanders in 2020 in the Democratic primaries. Look what happened to Elizabeth Warren and like the entire crowd. You know, Kamala Harris, too, was like all for Medicare for all and then like awkwardly tried to back away from it as she awkwardly, you know, does everything. But like the lesson is, is if you're kind of fronting pronouns and fighting about, you know, Hamas and Israel and all that, probably not going to unify the party in an electoral majority in November. And so there has to be a certain discipline in like, hey, like, let's focus on a set of ideas and target a set of voters who are going to get us like elected. And if you look at like the median voter in the country today, I think it's like a 50-year-old white guy without a college degree. And so, you know, you can't just appeal to the people who follow you on social media. Like, there has to be, Democrats have to find a way to have a, a broader tent movement than that. And they were able to do it in 2020, partly because Trump unified them and Biden seemed like the safest guy to get the job done. It's going to be harder in 2024 because people just aren't real happy with Biden. There's been a little bit of inflation. There's the war in Israel going on, like people are cranky. And, and Trump, as you guys said in the podcast with Bill Chris, like he's kind of receded into the background for a while. And, you know, other issues have been at the forefront and that's made people really grumpy and unhappy about Biden. But Trump is about to come storming back like in two weeks, you know. And once he does, I think that will make it sort of more of an even race. So maybe Democrats can still unite around even a kind of weakened aging Biden in a way that will allow this kind of populist agenda to carry forward. Because if Biden loses, I think politically a lot of what's happened is going to be discredited. Like everybody is going to chalk it up to inflation and, oh, we can't dare stimulate the economy and we can't ever give, you know, extend unemployment benefits during a recession and let's cut, cut, cut. Let's go right back to the kind of austerity that was so popular, like in the 1990s. And like, that's not a winning recipe for Democrats. Or for working yeah. people. Okay. Um, so I need to defend my uh, centrist dignity and liking Joe Biden after you've just uh, after, after, yeah, after you've yeah. just pitched him as a Trojan horse for the Elizabeth Warren populist agenda. Because I don't think that that's really true. I think he has done some things. You're right. I think that on narrowly, again, on the on the theme of the book, 
on on the anti-Wall Street stuff, on the on the more Keynesian, whatever you want to say, the you know more spending, injecting stimulus into the economy in a way that Obama even didn't grant you that. But like, let's look at what he d- didn't do. And you've already mentioned Medicare for all. He didn't do that. He's not a Green New Deal Democrat. We are we're drilling more than ever. He's not trying to re-engineer our capitalist system to look more like a Nordic country's <laughs> capitalist. <laughs> he doesn't have a new pronoun, right? Uh, yeah. We are we don't have open borders, uh, no matter what Fox tells you. Uh, he's not arguing that Palestine should be free from the river to the sea. You know, he did some student loan forgiveness, I guess, more than I would have wanted by executive order, but has, did not like really go the whole way. We don't we don't have SCOTUS reform. We don't haven't added states. I would even be for adding states. But, uh, you know, like there's a lot that he hasn't given them. Well, right. He's also had a 50-50 Senate with, you know, two, like, are they even Democrats anymore? They're not, right? <laughs> Cinnamon, Manchin, or I can't keep track of all the Manchin is still a Democrat. Cinnamon is not. And uh, Angus okay. King, I guess, technically is not either, though he's voted with the Democrats. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I hear what you're saying. But look, I think if Democrats had, you know, 59 or 60 senators the way they did when I was hanging out with Tim Geithner after the last crisis in 2009, you would see Supreme Court reform. You would see pushes for these new states. You would see like a much more robust um, like stimulus and kind of care economy stuff than we wound up getting because Democrats would have the political wherewithal to do that. Now, maybe that would have like blown inflation even higher and we'd be in a disaster today. But I don't think that the fact that Biden hasn't put into play like the kind of full spectrum crazy lefty agenda doesn't mean that he hasn't been like a valuable like ally, the most valuable ally for like the populist left strain of Democrats. I mean, the way I frame it in the book is all you have to do is look at our last two financial crises, right? In after the 2008 crash, you know, I was hanging out with Warren, I was Boston Globe guy, and she, her job at the time, she was like the the, the bailout policeman, the TARP yeah. oversight chairman. And, you know, she went to the Obama people and had this whole laundry list of like middle class focused things you should do um, to help recover from this giant economic crash. We just had stuff like a big stimulus and beefed up unemployment, eviction freeze, small business loans, student debt relief, like all of that stuff. Uh, She got none of it. And, you know, the economy was miserable and it led to, you know, the rise of these kind of populist movements and ultimately Donald Trump. So you flash forward to the COVID crash and, you know, not only has Biden instituted like every single one of these things, but he's populated his administration with like most of the important Elizabeth Warren, like allies and policy thinkers. And in fact, like the ideas have been so strong on their own, like Trump was the first guy that put a lot of these things into practice, right? He was president when COVID hit. I don't know about you. I got a big check in the mail. You know, there were enhanced unemployment benefits. I mean, Trump went full economic populist in a way that like he hadn't to the frustration of people like Steve Bannon, he hadn't been willing to do at any point up to then in his presidency. And like he almost won re-election. Yeah, he really kind of went half economic populist. Maybe had he gone full economic populist. Had he, he might gone have won. even three quarters economic populist, I think he would have won re-election. But like he he didn't do it. But it just goes to show you the power of these policies. Like when you strip away all the kind of Washington, you and me, pointy-headed bullshit. At the end of the day, any winning coalition, Republican or Democrat, 
has to appeal to like ordinary working people who are like living their lives and trying to get their kids into college and trying to pay their bills and like trying to retire and just doing all the boring stuff that nobody wants to write or tweet about because it doesn't get any engagement. But like at the end of the day, like that's what you got to be able to do. You have to make a convincing case that like people's lives are going to get better, not going to get worse. And like to me, this kind of economic populist agenda economic populist agenda, not like pronouns and immigration, yeah. is like the secret sauce that, that can let either party do that. And one of the things that be interesting to watch when Trump comes back is like, is he just going to be full on election denier, let's deport everybody? Or, you know, will Bannon and some of these other guys kind of lure him like back onto the path of like, hey, talk to the union worker who like got laid off and wants a bigger paycheck and go back to some of the anti-Wall Street economic populism stuff that got him elected in the first place in 2016. Um, I'm working through all this live in my brain. So, you know, we'll see if this makes sense when it comes out. And one way that the right populism I mean, obviously, I don't want to create a false equivalence. Like, Nazis are scarier yeah, than yeah, socialists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Nazis are scarier than socialists. So, granted. But, like, we'll check but that just, box. Yeah. Yeah, but just as a, as a formulation. One reason that right economic populism is a little scarier to me is that it, it kind of works in concert with cultural populism in a way, at least right now, like, in the country that can make it a political force. Maybe not quite as much a political force as Bannon wishes. Uh, me and Bannon have gone back and forth on this a few times. <laughs> There's some elements of conservative cultural populism that turn off a lot of normies, too. Yeah, But, but it's, it's particularly at odds, I think, on the left, right, where the economic populism, like, gets so overshadowed. Like, if it is in, if it's united with the kind of campus left identitarian yeah. restructuring our, you know, the social compact kind of leftists. Fine for Harvard just, presidents to plagiarize kind of yeah, leftists. It yeah. just doesn't work. Like it just, like they're just, I just don't, maybe it'll work in 20 years. Maybe it's something to be scared about in 20 years after, you know, with countries, demographic changes in the country. But like right now, I just think that is so unpopular. And so how do you, like when you talk to people on the, on the populist economic left, do they see these other folks as baggage for them? Totally. Look, huge concern about this and, and also like fear of speaking out. I mean, I think that like the fundamental flaw of the left today is that like they hypnotize themselves like into thinking that there aren't electoral trade-offs for, for that kind of behavior, that they can just sort of like abstract it away through an argument or something like that. And like there isn't. And like there, there have been people who I think have like very bravely, you know, spoken out and written about this. Ryan Grimm at The Intercept did like a great series of pieces about like the crisis in a lot of lefty nonprofit organizations that have essentially abandoned their missions in order to just have these kind of fights over identity that are like not only killing the organizations, but like, you know, grinding kind of the progressive advancement to a halt. So no question, like, this is a huge problem for the left. And I think a lot of people on the left realize that. I Like, I tend to look at it less as, oh, God, these guys are kind of sinking the left and more, like, I don't know, maybe I'm an optimist or maybe I'm just kind of arguing on behalf of, like, these political ideas, this political history that I've written about in the book. But to me, like, to me, one of the most, I can't remember if I put the scene in the book or not. God, it's going to kill me if I didn't do it, but you will appreciate it. Okay. You know, when Bannon, when Steve Bannon... When Steve Bannon was in the White House, that brief like six month span when he was in the White House, you know, I'd written the book about populism and I was very much in touch with him because I was, you know, and uh, like he was so busy that the only time I could actually get his attention was like early on Saturday mornings. I would, I'm not making this up, I would get up at six in the morning, 
I would go to Dunkin' Donuts and buy like a box of a dozen donuts. I would drive to the Breitbart Embassy where Bannon lived. I'd get there at like 7 in the morning. And we would sit down. And it was like pulling the string on a wind-up. He would just sit there like eating donuts and coffee <laughs> for like three hours and kind of discoursing on the events of the photo- day. Can we do an AI photo of Bannon <laughs> with like donut crumbs on him for the uh, for the image for this uh, podcast? I'll, I'll leave that to you. But his okay. big thing at the time was like Trumpism has like two elements. It's the anti-immigrant stuff, whatever. But like Trump also ran as like the wall anti-Wall Street populist, helped the little guy. And for a brief while, like Bannon in the White House was trying to talk Trump into doing a tax plan where he would raise – income taxes, just a tiny bit on people who made over $5 million. It would be like this signal that would disarm all the lefty attacks about Republicans of the party, the rich. And everybody told him to go to hell. And I think somebody, I don't know, it was like Scaramucci or somebody like leaked on him to Axios. And, you know, the idea just sort of crashed right away. But when we were sitting there, like stuffing our face what with What a great donuts, idea, by the way. Scary totally, great idea. Totally. But while we were sitting there stuffing our face with donuts every Saturday morning, like, Bannon's big fear at that time was Elizabeth Warren. Like he had this idea that the big threat to Trump was what he called democratic nationalism, that that essentially she would mix like lefty progressive politics. Yes, but with a kind of patriotic democratic nationalism that he you know, built around infrastructure and like helping out union workers and all this kind of stuff. Like that was his big fear at the time, that, that she would run again in 2020 and, and kind of forefront that in her campaign. And like, I I believe to my core that there is something to that, that like that is that is the path forward for Democrats. Now, Warren started out on that path and, and didn't adhere to it. And we saw what happened, you know, write about it in the book in case you've forgotten. Um, but, but, but to me, like that is, that is the reason I think that populism can be a positive force. But look, I don't think that you and I are really in disagreement that if what we're fighting about is, hey, it's okay for the Harvard president to plagiarize and we really need to have a fight about intersectionality and, you know, we really need to kind of like open up borders for social justice reasons or whatever, then Democrats are going to get clobbered and we're going to be back to, you know, Trump presidency part two. Yeah, um, that's an intriguing answer because I think it's the first time a Bulwark podcast guest has praised both Ryan Grimm and Steve Bannon. Um, uh, either one, actually, yeah, but but I, both yeah. of them in one answer. Uh, heterodox you know, thinker right here. Right? Heterodox I, should, I should go work for Barry Weiss. Yeah, Grimm, Grimm, you're welcome on here. We can hash things out. We've, we have some areas of agreement um, here. Uh, maybe not 100, but we have some. Um, <laughs> the uh, immigration thing is interesting. There's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Because that's like the closest parallel when I think about, you know, there's this discussion about like have, has left populism succeeded or are they all a bunch of failures? And like, and I think both these things are true, right? Your argument is kind of it, is exceed, it succeeded because the established democratic order has embraced some of their ideas, you know, uh, some of the central ideas, particularly on the economic side. I think that my argument and others would be like, it's failed because they lose every fucking primary. You know, there's an Alyssa Slotkin poll out today and she's winning. She's crushing some some Rashida Tlaib. No, too, I saw I saw you. I saw you tweet that. But look, we're, I think we're talking past each other in a certain sense. You're talking about like actual politicians winning elections. And yeah. I'm talking about like the advancement of like a set of policy ideas. I mean, I think one of the reasons sure. that like my thesis doesn't get more respect, not just from like center right podcast guys like you. But from like I might people be center left now, I don't but know. Like, but like, all right, all right. But like from <laughs> from people on the left is like in American politics, we're so used to like rooting for characters and rooting for jerseys that like if Bernie isn't president, then you know 
the whole progressive movement has like failed and it's this like centrist evil Wall Street Biden whatever whatever I don't know like I, I maybe because I came up through these like dull policy magazines like I've always looked at politics as a kind of a policy first thing like we're in the game because we're trying to accomplish a certain set of things and you can measure pretty clearly like you know how many of those things you managed to get enacted into law and if so if you look at it through my lens I think that, that Biden and the left have both been very successful. But if you look at it through the lens of, hey, is AOC going to be the Democratic nominee in 2028? I think she's going to run. But no, like in, in that case, you haven't been. And in all but like the deepest blue Brooklyn hipster precincts, like those kinds of politicians are not going to be able to get elected. So I don't I don't disagree with you, but I look at it from a policy standpoint more than like a politician's standpoint. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that we mostly agree. I just I just kind of I get and this goes to what I want to compare it to on the right. I, I think that the question really our disagreement is we're having we're judging how much did the left get? How much did they want? Right. And I think you're looking at it through the frame of like they got more than many of them expected. And I'm kind of looking at it through the frame of like, well, Fox News and everybody that I read, like told me that we were like headed towards a socialist hellscape and, and yeah. like they haven't gotten anywhere close to that. So like to me, it's been kind of incremental. And that's fine. So they've had some incremental victories. I want to compare that to the populist right. So like in some ways, like immigration would be the Wall Street issue of the right, I would say, <laughs> right? Where like the where the populist right has kind of won the policy battle. Now for me in a bad way, obviously, since I <laughs> was part of the Jeb Bush compassionate conservative right that has gotten decimated. But they've won that. And similarly to the left, they've won some incremental battles. I mean, the wall is partially built and, you know, no Republican politician. Uh, some of it's fallen down. Some of it's fallen down. But it's not, it hasn't been a super successful policy implementation, but they've gotten some of the things that they wanted, just like the left did. Like, you know, the Wall, wall Street's still doing okay. The capital gains tax rate's still where it was in 79. You know, it was carry, one carry interest everything. loophole. Like, yeah, the like interest loophole taxes is still there. The, yeah. Right. So they've gotten some of what they wanted, um, but they haven't gotten everything. And yet they're seen as more successful because, you know, they keep winning all of these political battles, intra, intra-party political battles. Because I, and my, my answer to that is, and I'm interested in your take since you were in both these worlds, is that part of that is just because the left populists have actually things that they want to achieve and are okay with incremental gains. And the right populists are pretty much nihilists. And, like, they've gotten some incremental gains, but they don't actually care. And what they really want is power and, pl- and tearing down the elites. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I buy the distinction that you're making okay, kind of between great. the right and the left. I mean, I, like if, if we're looking at it through my vector of like what policies that they I think the populist right has like been incredibly successful. I mean, I remember like sitting in the Breitbart embassy with Bannon back in 2013, 2014, like when he was trying to find somebody to run for president and like before he landed on Trump, who was like his fifth choice, he was trying to get Jeff, Jeff Sessions to do it. Right. And his pitch to Sessions, this is from the last book, forgive me for repeating, but was like, look, Dude, like you get in this race and you run and the issues that you and I care about, like trade and especially immigration will vault from like like the the 29th and 30th most important issues for Republicans to like number one and number two. Well, he didn't get sessions, but like he eventually got Trump. And what are the two big drivers uh, like on the on the right today or two of the biggest drivers? You know, it's trade and immigration and the party is Trumpy and, and full of MAGA and like Steve Bannon is still the guy setting a, a lot of the policy agenda. So like I think he's kind of succeeded in that way, even though 
when you run a lot of these MAGA politicians and like house races, like they just step on a million rakes and like wind up blowing winnable elections like time after time after time. So like if you look at it from a policy standpoint, I think they've sort of had some advances. I don't think that a lot of populists on the left view things the way that I do. Like my argument to the populist left is you guys should take the win. Like you've got a lot of these policies enacted, like, you know, you can keep fighting for, for, you know, X, Y, and Z, Green New Deal or this or that, but like have some recognition of like what Biden has been able to achieve from your agenda and also realize that like if you want this thing to like continue forward, like you have got to get that guy reelected or like your world is going to come to an end. You're going to have Donald Trump in there and it's not going to cause this mass radical awakening where all of a sudden the socialists will take over the White House and like, you know, turn us into into Norway or whatever. It's, it's going to set back all of your goals, like to even like the pre-Trump era, and it will be like a vast flaming hellscape. So okay. I don't know. That's, so that's, perpetu- that's where so I'm you're saying the parallel as perpetual grievance and perpetual feeling of unsuccess despite having these big wins. Totally. Um, I mean, do you do you yeah. like follow some of these lefties on social media? I mean, yeah, see, like this, the, is part, this is part of, I think, where we talk past each other, because I mean, yeah. even though you spent a lot of time with Bannon, I assume that you're not punishing yourself in the way that I am with like constant inputs from like what is happening in the Tim Pool Bannon like you know you're a political guy like I'm a reporter I mean to me he was like this this wild character I mean he was like a dancing monkey like as a writer like there's nothing more exciting than like seeing this these two you know put Trump in there too these two crazy characters like in my career, I'll never see two more people like that. So, like, I'm not. No, I'm not beating myself up. I'm sort of fascinated. And, no, and no, yeah, my point is, I just, I'm not, I'm not looking at the crazy lefty stuff. I just like, I don't, I'm not consuming this material. And so maybe <laughs> I'm just missing. You know, maybe I'm just oh, missing. Right. Dude, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not consuming. I, I don't. I'm not consuming libs of TikTok like source material. It's look. Believe me, it's out there. And and I have a hard time. I mean, like, I'm I'm social media, Twitter poison too. Like I still am on that site and like read it despite I should know better. And like, so like maybe my view of, of the left and what it cares about, like, is it perfectly accurate? There are probably a lot of people not on social media who are out there working hard to get Joe Biden elected. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the big fights we're having on on the left, it's not really about stuff that is going to kind of broaden the tent and like pull in the Tim Millers of the world to vote for, for Joe Biden in 2024. I guess not, maybe, maybe you don't need persuading yeah, on that maybe, front, yeah. but like, look, if Biden is going to win again, you know, he's going to have to persuade a lot of people who like are kind of iffy on him that, that he can kind of do something for them. And like a lot of these fights over Israel and Hamas and over, you know, whatever's going on at Harvard's campus this week is like, I don't think the issue that's going to, that's going to achieve that goal. Um, any other compare and contrast for us from your time in uh, giving giving Bannon donuts <laughs> to you know calling Elizabeth Warren policy nerds? I mean, obviously that's another big difference. It's just like the type of person that is populating these worlds is quite different. I would say maybe you have some observations on that part. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. My brain is racing. Like, what's the equivalent of of like of like Matt stuff Boyle. in my face with, with bayonet donuts? The closest I have in the book, I can't remember something. It's like I did wind up like when she was kind of at the height of her presidential campaign. I went over to Warren's condo in D.C. and she fed me mango lemonade, like she homemade, like that's a thing. But like we just we just kind of talk talk yummy. shop and talk policy. No, I but, bet but, like the people around her, like the people in her orbit, are like all these kind of nerdy, populist, wonky types, which is very different than the hobbits that are like walking. They're through. all of her former uh, Harvard students, you know. Yeah, right. so they actually literally are. I'll tell you what, 
you make a good point. This is the big difference between like the populist left and the populist right. There is no Steve Bannon of the populist left. And I think that that hurts Democrats. There's no Pied Piper out there. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Like once the book comes out and, yeah, and sure. Bulwark sends it, you know, soaring onto the bestseller list. But there, there's there's no Bannon equivalent out there, sort of making like a compelling case for like why this needs to be the Democratic focus and kind of marching people in this direction. And like it is a sort of like Mad Max like post-apocalyptic scene on the left sometimes where. You know, some days we're fighting over Black Lives Matters, and sometimes it's Green New Deal, and sometimes it's Harvard, and sometimes it's pronoun. And, like, you know, th there really isn't that kind of unifying message that you would want as a Democratic strategist to kind of have going into, like, a really important 2024 election. I don't know if it was a Politico yesterday or something. I was reading about how, like, Porter went around and talked to a bunch of Democrats in Congress, like, what's Biden's message? Like, what's Biden's agenda for the second term? And it's like, it, like it's crickets. Like you, you wouldn't you wouldn't have that problem on the right as long as, yeah. you know, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are around. That's scary. A lefty Steve Bannon. I'm just trying to get a picture of what that person ends up looking. I guess it was Michael Moore for a while. <laughs> Slovenly vegetarian. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Michael Moore. Michael Moore whatever happened to him? I yeah. think that your avatar for Josh Greenism, if we call it that right now, is really Fetterman. Like, you no, know, it, if, totally, if he was a better is. messenger, if he was a better messenger, like he is kind of a, he, he looks the part, he talks the part, and he, he isn't getting bought down into the cultural stuff on the cultural. Totally. So my my last quick little anecdote. So I was yeah. I was in uh, Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, like two weeks ago, like the iconic depressed Pennsylvania steel town. Uh, they had like the big mill got ripped down in the eighties, bombed out landscape. Now nothing's been there. I was out there because, um, you know, for the first time in 40 years, there's a new low-carbon steel plant being built there. And they have this charismatic young Democratic mayor. And, like, the city has just come out of financial receivership for the first time since Ronald Reagan was president. Unemployment in the county is down to, like, 3%. Like, this crazy, crazy turnaround story. So I thought, hey, Josh, put on your reporter hat. Let's go to the swing state and see, like, how people are cheering Biden over the way things are running. And I get out there and, like... Hanging out with the mayor is a great guy. He's like, yeah, nobody has any idea that any of this has anything to do with Biden because, like, he's not here. They're not selling it. You know, the last guy to come out to this neck of the woods uh, a couple years ago was Trump because Shell opened up a new plant. It was actually Obama's doing, but by the time it opened, Trump was president. Trump came out and said, took credit for it. He went to the plant and thousands of, you know, people rallying. And Trump points it and says, that wouldn't happen without me, you know. <sighs> you you go out and, and you see, like, on a policy level, like I said, like, a lot of things are kind of pointing in the right direction. But, like, at the end of the day, as a campaign guy, you know this, like, you have to get out there and, and campaign and, like, convince people that, like, you deserve another term, that things are going right, that the reason that things are going right is because of what you did and what your administration did. And, and that's the place, I think, you only have to look at a poll to see this. That's the place where I think Biden is falling down and needs to kind of get up and improve bigly before November 2024. That is a frustrating anecdote. Okay, my last question for you. You began your career, maybe you didn't begin it. Early in your career, you were at The Onion. I was. And I do, I want to, do, I want to know if you have a favorite Onion sto headline that you did, or story, or oh, God. gag. So, I can't remember if this was, this isn't like the weird, before The Onion was nationally famous version of The Onion. I was like living in Boulder, Colorado, in like a flop house. This was actually even like pre-internet. 
and they used to kind of publish the Onion in kind of like a paper version in college towns. I don't think it was my headline, but the Onion used to be kind of zany back then. Okay. And they just had this this article that was like, Jesus makes triumphant return at Kegger. And there's like a picture of Jesus and like a thorny cross with a bunch of bros and a keg, like doing a keg stand or whatever. Those were kind of like the halcyon days, the Onion. The other, the other thing I used to do, um, somehow I... I feel like I'm going to wind up getting myself canceled here. Was it pre-9-11? Kind of when anymore. was this? What year was this? Oh, this was, like, this was like 96, 97, yeah. something okay. like yeah, that. Yeah, the glory days of the 90s. That's, I mean, this is, yeah, there's no, no serious th- things to be worried about. They used so to, make the, Jagger, Jesus. the Onion used to have this thing. It was called the Onion's Drunk of the Week. And, like, I was the Onion's Drunk of the Week wrangler. And, like, you would go out to the college bars of the Polaroid. Do you remember Polaroids? Yeah, you know? Of course, yeah. And we had this big sign that said, like, Lord, help me. I am the Onion's Drunk of the Week, and I am dumb. That was the Onion's slogan. You'd find just, like, the sloppiest, most shit-faced person you could to kind of hold this up and sign a photo release. And then you would, like, put it in the paper. And, like, that was literally my first job in, in journalism, if you can call it journalism, was working for a fake news outlet um, running uh, Onion Drunk of the Week feature so I think there's a lot of parallels know. to that in your work covering Breitbart actually now we think about it okay I lied I lied last last question Coach Prime you lived in Boulder where are you at on Coach Prime are you concerned no you I was like so okay so the Onion did not pay a living wage so my other job back then was I was a uh, I covered Colorado football for the alumni newspaper it's called the Buffalo Sports News so I was both okay. the drunk of the McCartney, week wrangler this is, this is Cordell Stewart no this was era. no it was right after uh, he'd left it was the Rick Neuheisel era oh so Rick Neuheisel st- era okay what a what a phony but um, I was like hang out with drunks at night doing Onion stuff and during the day I would go to football practice with like the CU football players and like write about it so I was so excited for kind of Coach Prime, and I actually was about to pitch. I worked for Business Week. I was about to pitch Business Week a story so I could go back out and like relive my glory days in Bowler and hang out with. And like the Prime thing happened so fast, somebody else did it for like Business Week before I could do it about like all the brand endorsements like Prime was bringing in. So I think he's a bit of a kind of Trump phony. You know, like it went three and zero. Oh, like that was when I was pitching the yeah. story. What did, what did they wind up like three and nine or something Four like that? Eight or something. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. But I, I'm pretty excited about it. Like Boulder's a great place. CU is like a fun place to be. And so like, you know, despite my better judgment, like I'm pulling for Coach Prime uh, in 2024. Rick Neuheisel. That's maybe a I can maybe I can work a business week junket to get myself out there for season. Yeah, we'll two. figure it out. Or you know, maybe yeah. a bulwark stringer gig. We'll figure it out. There we uh, go. Green, there we go. Um, <laughs> go out and order it. There are much anecdotes we didn't get to. It's good stuff. Our lefty bulwark listeners who come to us. We brought you somebody that writes about the left. This is this is my gift to you my in book. 2024. Yes. We're going to spend plenty of time this year talking about what's happening in Candace Owens' world. So you know, just kind of uh, do some do some populist left time. It'll be good for your soul. The rebels, Warren Sanders, AOC, and the struggle for a new American politics. We'll talk to you soon, Joshua. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Better help me.